Welcome to the Food Junkies Podcast. Here, we aim to provide you with the experience, strength, and hope of professionals actively working on the front lines in the field of food addiction. The purpose of our show is to educate you, the listener, and increase overall awareness about food addiction as a disease with abstinence as the solution. Here, we talk about all things recovery. Most importantly, how to thrive rather than just survive. So stay positive, make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread. Hey there, Food Junkies listeners. Today we have Michelle Thorne. Michelle Thorne is the host and producer of the podcast Food Slain. Her podcast focuses on digging below the surface and exploring what food companies sell to their consumers. We at the Food Junkies podcast feel this interview with Michelle is just the tip of the iceberg on some very important issues for our listeners. To learn more about some of the issues covered today, please be sure to check out Michelle's podcast, Food Slain, and sign up for her newsletter. In today's episode with Michelle, we talk about her journey, how she approaches food and why, her beef with chicken, how to build relationships with local farmers and ranchers, trustworthy information sources, some shocking discoveries she has made about stevia, coffee, and food banks, upcoming projects, and what she would tell a younger version of herself about food. Welcome, Michelle. Welcome to the Food Junkies podcast. My name is Dr. Vera Tarman, and I am your host today, along with Molly Painshop. Today, we are talking to Michelle Thorne of the Food Slain podcast. Michelle is known as the native New York City girl turned Oregon farm girl. She has worked in the farm industry for years, advocating for small farmers, local food, food security, and clean food. And she speaks from the vantage point of chef to farmer, farmer, i.e. turkey, ducks, and chickens. I hope you talk about that. And and is author of Plant-Based Diet, um, Adding Raw to Easy Recipe Book, and also has another publication, Backyard Garden Planner and Guide. Notably, Michelle is the host of the weekly podcast, Food Slain, which looks into the dirty side of the food supply chain, looking at how food ingredients can affect our health, environment, and our economy. We at Food Junkies Podcast are interested in these issues to be aware of as we move away from processed foods towards the real food world, what issues lie on this other side of the greener pasture? How can we ensure that we are eating the clean version of our sugar-free and unprocessed food? So welcome, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Vera and Molly for having me. I'm very excited to be here. Okay. So let's start with the personal, which is just how did you tell us your journey about how you got into this food slain podcast and basically perspective? Well, the short story is, you know, I started this podcast in March of 2020, which was right at the beginning of the pandemic. And it was perfect timing. And I decided to start it because just honestly, I got tired of my friends not calling me back (laughs) because I just talk about this stuff all the time. And it's, you know, my route to it was quite circuitous. And it probably started a really long time ago as a child because I just knew something was up with the food. I didn't really know what, and I naturally do not follow convention. (laughs) So I learned pretty much as an adult, meaning right after college, I started digging and I started reading voraciously about food because one of my 
biggest pet peeves is being lied to. I just don't like it. And I don't really know anybody who does like that. And so it just took me on this journey, you know, where I started looking into diets, you know, and different foods that were promoted to us as something really healthy, but then it would change or the food pyramid would change or, you know, they would come out with some new story that this thing was bad for you. Now you want to eat this thing. And it just seemed odd to me. And so I started studying food and the body and the immune system and the digestive system, just trying to understand how these things were working to get these outcomes that were playing out in the health of the people that were closest to me. And so that's pretty much how I started. I mean, I literally stopped eating meat, like just cold turkey at some point in the early 90s. And I did a juice cleanse and a raw food like detox, whatever that was at that time. And then I started supporting a local CSA. I'd gone to the state building in Harlem on 125th Street. And there was a guy teaching about local food and vegetables and seasonality and all these things I'd never really heard of before. And that really kick-started my desire to understand food, understand how food works in the body, how we digest it, what are the challenges, what's happening inside of our bodies when we're eating these foods. And that just continued for many, many years. I've tried every diet. I've been a vegetarian. I've been a vegan. I've done you know, almost every diet, the macrobiotic diet, I've done the eat right for your blood type diet, you know, all of them only to find that I think only we have the answer for ourselves. And so that's pretty much how I got to where I am, just continuous curiosity and investigation. You mentioned that you you ate meat and then you became vegan. And now I see that one of your jobs is that you're a farmer of, uh, I forget what you call it, turkey, turkeygens or anyway, turkey, turkeys, chickens and rabbits. So how does that fit into that? Are you eating meat again or are you still a vegan or, veg- or plant-based? So. I raise, I do raise small livestock. So I raise chickens, ducks, turkeys when in season. I have quail, rabbits, and I do have some small homesteading variety pigs called American guinea hogs. So I have a lot of animals. Let's just say that I have, you know, almost a hundred animals, I would say at any, at any given time. And So yes, I am eating meat, but I'm only eating the meat that I raise and, or, you know, another local farmer has raised and, you know, information and people evolve. And I still am a very strong supporter of eating lots of fruits and vegetables, right? I think that eating plants in tandem with, you know, really good clean meat, because I think the term is that a lot of farmers use, it's not the cow, it's the how. And how our meat in the United States is industrially processed, you know, grown, processed, manufactured from birth to, you know, the grocery store, it's all industrialized. And along that route, you know, how it goes from those stages of growth 
to the moment it gets on your plate and into your mouth. Most of that process is done by a machine. It's done with a lot of additives. It's done not humanely. You know, there's a lot of contamination. There's, you know, in the industry itself, there's price fixing, there's lots of corruption. And, you know, it it really doesn't support our health. However, the way that meat has been raised for millennia has been on pasture. And there's a reason for that. And, you know, before this industrialization of our meat specifically took place in this country, people weren't you know, there was no direct correlation between like people having these degenerative diseases connected to eating meat because the meat, the animal, when the animal's pasturing, like ruminants, for example, goats, sheep, cows, they eat grass and, you know, weeds, even rabbits eat grass and weeds, and they convert that energy into protein and good fat, right? Like heart healthy fat, saturated fat, even though, you know, I know you had one of my favorites on your podcast, Gary Tubbs. And, you know, that big fat lie is very confounding, meaning that there was, you know, this movement to really demonize animal products in our diets, even though, pasture-raised animals, and I'm making a distinction between pasture-raised and just using kind of a bucket term like grass-fed or free-range, because I think a lot of those terms have been misunderstood, right? They've turned into the natural, right, or the these umbrella terms that mean different things to different people, and consumers have a difficult time understanding, well, what's the difference between grass fed and free range and pasture based or whatever it, it's very confusing because there's a lot of marketing manipulation <laughs> that's also going on with a lot of our meat but just to kind of you know wrap up the point is that i decided i made a very conscientious choice in my own life to take control of my food production in as much as i am able and i know that everybody can't do that maybe on the scale that I can do it because I live, you know, far away from everything. But it is possible to have some control over the things that you eat by growing them with organic practices, not using chemical fertilizers and things of that nature, and even having a backyard flock of chickens so that you get some some eggs or, or ducks that are great for gardens. If you have a small garden, they'll eat your bugs, the slugs, you know, all of the, you know, predator bugs. And so there's a way to do it. I made that choice because it was a healthier choice for me. There were just things that I wasn't getting as a result of not having meat products in my body meaning the healthy fat, the amino acids, the B12s, you know, all of those things that are really important to our brains and the proper functioning of our body systems and so on. You know, uh, when you mentioned, uh, I'm confused myself. I don't know if you can shed any clarity or if it is just marketing mumbo jumbo, but the I, the concept of free range versus grass fed. I mean, can you shed any light on that? Because to me, it all does. It all really just sounds the same. So what I've researched with free range, specifically around chickens. So I did an episode on chickens. It's called My Beef with Chickens. <laughs> and in the process the industrial process of raising chickens, the USDA has a thing where they will allow 
these industrial farmers to use the term free range and natural without really any oversight, right? Or like double checking. And as long as the chickens have access to like something like one or two square feet of grass, (laughs) they can be labeled as free range, which in my opinion is completely it's deceptive at best, right? Because people have the perception of free range, like of this bucolic vision of the farm where the chickens are just roaming through the grass and they're eating all the bugs. And that just isn't the reality in the industrial food system. They may have access to a patch of grass, but the reality is, is a lot of these chickens, the breed that they are, they are Cornish cross or a version of a broiler Cornish cross chicken. And because of the way that they are fed very quickly on corn and soy, they grow very fast, faster than their bones can grow. So they don't, they can't even move. In fact, they just sit in their own excrement a lot of the day. So they wouldn't even want to free range. So I think that there is a communications issue in the marketing side of our food, but people and manufacturers want to attach those labels because it's easy because the USDA doesn't prevent them from doing that. So they'll use it to give the impression that this is a good product, air quotes, right? This is a better product than you could get, say, with something that doesn't have that messaging on it. And it's just confusing for a lot of consumers. A lot of consumers ask, well, what's the difference? What is the difference? You know, in we import a lot of like beef from Australia and Brazil. And a lot of that beef gets labeled, you know, grass fed. But what does that mean? It doesn't mean that they're getting exclusively grass fed. A lot of times it means that maybe they get some grass, but they're also getting corn and soy, period. There's no doubt about it. Either they're getting finished on corn and soy because they're being you know, imported into the US and being finished here in a feedlot, right? Which is typically how it goes right before slaughter. They fed a huge diet of, of grain so that they, we can get that marbling and that fat. And, you know, it's very complicated. You know, it's, it's hard to know as a consumer what's actually going on behind that package. And I think that's a lot of the reason why I do my show to inform people of what's going on behind the curtain. Yeah. And it sounds to me like if if somebody's listening, going, oh my God, this is what, you know, what do I do? It sounds like your other message, which is support local local farmers. That's where you're going to get the stuff that you know is good, right? Is by knowing the farmers and what their practices are, or is there somewhere another way? No, that's absolutely right. Most farmers are really proud of what they're doing. Most farmers are excited to talk to you about their practices and what they're doing. And they, they understand that there's other competition, right? These behemoth corporations, they don't really have any competition. They own 80% of the market or more, like 86% of the market. And they're price fixing, right? They don't have to compete. They can, you know, put the meat out there at a low price. They control the market. So, you know, they're not really worried about competition. But I think if consumers begin to support their local farmers, because at the end of the day, we can't 
control what they're going to do. They have more money, they have more power, they're, you know, influencing our, our government agencies. Like it's the pathway, I think, for consumers is to support local farmers. And there's a lot of benefits to that. They get to, you know, their money goes directly to the farmer to help improve their farm. People get hired locally. The money multiplier in the local economy is more stable. You know, the money just stays in the community and that's a benefit to local communities. It helps create resilience. And I think we all felt that instability in our food supply chain as soon as things started breaking down. As soon as we started hearing stories about, oh, the shelves are empty or the animals are being slaughtered because they can't be processed because of this, that, or the other reason, it's not reliable. The system is broken. But by supporting local farmers, not only do you get to talk to them, you get to have a face-to-face. You can tell when they're lying to you. If they're going to lie to you, you can tell. Anybody can tell if you look somebody in the eye and you can tell that they're lying, but you also get to ask questions. Chances are farmers will tell you the whole story because they're so proud of what they're doing. Farming is hard. It is hard work and it is a labor of love. And every farmer that I know who's raising livestock for like consumers and and customers who are buying their meat, they work hard. They want to do the right thing, not just by their animals, but by their soil. They want to do right by their customers. They want that repeat business because that's how you keep small farms viable, right? Without viable farms, there is no local farm anymore. It's all our choices become limited at that point. We, we can only choose the industrialized option. So yes, I absolutely 100% recommend finding a local farmer, even if it's just going to the farmer's market and getting your fruits and vegetables or getting some, you know, fresh meat, right? That is hormone free and antibiotics free is not eating corn or soy or whatever. Like talk to the farmer, support them, pay them directly. It really helps them do what they do, do it like at a really high level. And the food is so much better. If you've never eaten like a freshly harvested chicken or a piece of truly pasture-raised beef, I mean, hands down, it's the best food that I've ever, ever had in my life. Yeah, I could not agree more. My dad has ranched the vast majority of my life. My, I remember butchering chickens with my grandparents, butchering pigs and cattle with my dad. And it's so funny because like, it's hard for me to put that together because that's where I get my meat. I get it from the person that I know who's raising it. I get farm fresh eggs from a girlfriend of mine who is able to have backyard chickens, right? And it's amazing the color of the yolk and the color of the shells. And you get to see these chickens, like you actually get to see them in this yard eating these things, right? And then to know that there are so many people who are against eating animals because of this industrialization piece of it. But also, you know, remembering, you know, thinking like always wondering why was the food that I had at home when my dad made a, a steak on the grill or what, like, why was that always so much better than this really expensive steak that I probably paid, you know, that I paid for out. And it's like, okay, this is all adding up. Of course it's going to be better because I can drive up to the ranch and I can actually see the cattle grazing right? He can look at his book and he can tell me what number, right? Because they're all tagged. They have tagged, right? We keep track. We we keep track of our animals. He can tell me which animal is going to be mine if I'm paying for 
a beef to be slaughtered and then put into my freezer. I can see which animal that is and I can take a look and know if it's diseased or, or, you know, whatever in, in some sort of distress. And so I think that is what I love so much about your message is that it's like, it's not about, you know, that everything is so bad and that, and whatever, it's just like, make better choices, do better, make these relationships. And if you don't have a local, if you live somewhere where there isn't a local farmer, there is a local butcher. There is a local butcher somewhere who has that relationship with that local farmer and make a relationship with that person. We have grocery stores. I live in Montana and we have grocery stores where they carry, you know, the local hooderite colonies bring in chickens and ducks and geese and, you know, turkeys and whatever they raise and their potatoes and their whatever. And you can buy it straight from our locally owned grocery stores, not the chains, but the locally grown grocery stores and and the CSAs. And so I just, I really appreciate that message of like, just consider where the food is coming from because it is going to be more nutritious. And so, you know, I have a couple questions with that is one, you know, what should people be asking? Like what questions should they show up to these farmers markets or what, like, what should we be asking to know some of these things? Like you said, like ask somebody, you're going to know if they're lying. So what kind of questions should we be asking? And then where do you get your information and can we direct people to that? So maybe they can be doing this research themselves and showing up with better questions. So the first question was, what can you ask? And I always start with a smile when I go to the farmer's market. I think that is the most wonderful thing that you can do for a farmer is just smile at them, say hello. You can ask them about where their farm is, how far is it from where you live. You can ask them about their varieties. You know, a lot of people take for granted that, you know, every farmer is using organic seed. Every farmer is not using organic seed. (laughs) So, and there's a lot to the seed story too, right? Because we all know that it's in part controlled by big large corporations like Monsanto and Bear, right? So, you know, you can ask them about the varieties that they grow. Are they heirloom varieties? Are they, you know, open pollinated varieties? Or what do they like about growing the varieties that they grow? What are their practices that they're using? Do they use chemical fertilizers? Are they using local compost? Are they making their own compost? When they do have, say, you know, pests, meaning every garden has pests, right? Like what types of management are they using to control pests, right? I think most farmers who are doing wonderful things will have no problem being completely transparent. I think when you know something's up, people recoil, right? They, they begin to start protecting themselves. Oh, well, I, I don't really know. Or, you know, well, yeah, I use this or, you know, whatever. They just ignore you and they turn to the next customer or whatever. It's like, follow your instincts and watch their body language. You know, you don't have to be aggressive or, you know, whatever. You can, you can really just read a lot if their eyes shift, <laughs> you know, and they're giving you the answer. I think when it comes to meat, you know, it's the same thing. You can ask, so, you know, are your animals, are they heritage breed, you know, or what breed are they? Why are you raising those animals? You know, I'm curious as to whether you finish your animals with grain. You don't have to bring up the soy and corn thing because I think people, so farmers are people and they're business people and their goal is to keep their costs down, right? So that you as a customer can afford to purchase what they are selling to you and they can still make a profit. It's a business, right? So corn and soy 
are cheaper feed inputs. That's why they're used so prolifically in the food system, specifically when it comes to meat. The challenge is that corn and soy, as we all know, are monocrops. They're heavily contaminated. They kill biodiversity. I mean, there's so many reasons why corn and soy are bad for people, but it's particularly bad for ruminants. It just isn't the right food for ruminants. They need grass or they need brassicas or they need other forbs, you know, F-O-R-B-S. That's just a type of grass you know, weed, plants, whatever that they eat that helps their bodies move through their stomachs and create the protein. They get the chlorophyll, blah, 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 all that. So I would just start with simple questions. Start with a smile and with a thank you. You know, if you want to purchase from them, make a small purchase, try it, let them know, hey, you know what? If this really works out for me, I'll be back and support that farmer. I've purchased, you know, this was my first year this year purchasing a quarter of beef. I've never done that before. And I didn't really know much about how the process worked, like technically, but I had been to the farm. And that's another thing that people can do. They can go visit <laughs> the farm. You can actually go see a lot of farmers. They have tours and you can go and check it out. So I went to go visit this amazing farm and they you know, they, it's just word of mouth, right? And she had a quarter beef left over at the end of the season. And I really wanted to support it, but a quarter was just too much for me. So I wound up splitting it with another one of her longtime customers. Best decision of my life. It was amazing beef, the best beef I've ever had in my life. And what was great about being able to be on their property, have them talk through their process, how their animals graze. They're on 800 acres. They've got this like, they grow their own hay. So they're like cutting their hay, bailing it. And I mean, just phenomenal. I was so happy to be able to support them. And I will say one consumer concern that I find in the market is cost, right? People think that buying meat from a local producer is just, I can't afford it, which is a real constraint. I get it. Not everybody can afford it. Here's the kicker. If you really run the numbers, because I like to talk numbers on my podcast too, because it's all intertwined. Here's the math. I bought a quarter beef, split it with somebody else, got it from the farmer to the butcher, Cut, wrapped, frozen, I had to pick it up. Cost me less than $6 a pound for almost 55 pounds of meat. You can't buy an organic steak for $6 a pound, let alone just ground beef. So it's quite competitive. It's a much better product. I think it's nutritionally superior. It is supporting my local community and farmers that are working really hard. It gives me such a sense of pride and I value it so much more. When I take that, you know, that ground beef from the pack that I get, that I got from them, I'm so honored and grateful to enjoy it because it's so good. So I think hopefully I answered that question. There's, there's so many things that we can do. It's just having the courage to do it. You can buy herd shares from your local farmers, split them with your family members, You know, buy a whole cow and split it between four families and you'll have enough for the entire winter, You know, maybe the entire year. 
And then how, like, where do you get your information? Can Where can we direct our listeners to maybe start looking at finding some of this information for themselves so they can start formulating their own relationships and, and questions to show so up? Information like what? Just clarify for me because there's so much information. Yeah. So for example, you know, like you were saying, you, you know, you were reading, you know, things are always coming out, eat eggs, don't eat eggs, eat kale, don't eat kale, (laughs) that kind of stuff. How do you find your information as far as like the sources that you trust to start formulating your own, I guess, like opinions on what it is that's happening so that you can make informed decisions for yourself? Well, I think, you know, like everybody, I, I start with Google and I ask the questions to Google and I see what comes up. Now we have to understand what's at play with algorithms, right? They're only going to show you sometimes things that confirm your own bias and that's okay. I don't have a problem with that, but I think there, you know, there's a thing in economics called perfect information and economics is sure. It's about money and transactions and like economies and all of that, but it's really about decision-making. It's about understanding the information from all sides, right? It's really having a full picture of information. So I think when I start, I start with a question. So for example, trying to think with a recent episode. So I started with, I did a episode on vegetable oils. Oh my goodness. Blew my head wide open. I just wanted to understand (laughs) vegetable oils, right? I I think I something piqued my interest where I was reading about vegetable oils and the way that they're processed. And I just started digging. And one question leads to another question, which leads to another question. And I wind up going down this rabbit hole because I like to get both sides of the issue. And if I can find sources that give me a picture, say if I'm digging into the processing of something and I'm looking at, well, how is vegetable oil processed? And I'll read something and that will tip me off to something else. Oh, I'd never heard of that. And I looked that up. And it's really this kind of domino effect that happens with me and my research. And at some point I've aggregated all of this information, most of the time, it just makes me angry. (laughs) But it's also really exciting because, you know, it's like peeling an onion. You get to one layer and then you see something else, you learn something else and you peel back another layer and just keep going and keep going and keep going until you get to that core. And I think I ask the questions based on like a pillar. So I have three pillars in my podcast. I look at health, I look at economics, and I look at ecological and the impacts of those things. And so if I'm looking at a specific ingredient, I'll look at, okay, well, what are the health professionals saying about this? And you have to be careful because as we know, health professionals can be bought off. Politicians can like everybody can be bought at some point. So it really is tricky to find it good qualitative, you know, factual scientific based information. And I don't, I don't even tell people to, you know, don't listen to me, right? Do your own research, (laughs) you know, just do your own research, like fact check yourself. You know, I don't know everything. Everybody's got blind spots. And I think it's just really good to do your own research 
if you listen to my podcast or people listening to this podcast, you know, and you, you hear something that inspires you to start looking into, yeah, like just find multiple sources, you know, to validate and even contradict, like listen to the other side of the story, find out as much as you can and try to make the best decisions that you can for yourself, for your life, for your wallet, you know, for your health you know, for the environment, which is something I think a lot of people forget about in their everyday purchasing. We go to the store and we buy things that we think are healthy, that are promoted as healthy. This is one of the reasons why I moved away from just promoting raw food. The problem with raw food, I mean, there's a lot of kind of digestive things that come with eating a 100% raw food diet. But when you start to look at the ingredients that people are using, they're using things like cashews, Brazil nuts, coconuts, these acai, they're coming from thousands of miles away. They're traveling on barges. They're not, they have a huge footprint is what I'm trying to say. Not only that, a lot of these inputs are also grown in countries where they're slave labor. So all of that is built into that product, right? And it is disingenuous to promote something that is, hey, this is supposed to be super healthy for you. Oh, but by the way, people aren't getting a fair wage. Maybe they're slave labor. They're getting contaminated and coming out with these horrible diseases because they're handling, you know, pesticides and herbicides and God only knows what, you know, and it's traveling 3,000 miles on a barge for two weeks. Yeah, you know, yeah. I, when I listened to some of your podcasts, I was really struck by, well, you, you know, your three pillars that you looked at that economic piece and the historical piece. And so just by way of giving some examples, I mean, especially for us people who are trying to eat well, could you comment on a couple of the of your podcast stuff that you found? Like, uh, you've got some great titles, by the way, you know, Vegetable Oil, <laughs> The Billion Dollar Killer and The Revenge of the Seed Oils. You know, like, can you tell us a little bit about some of the stuff that you found that we should know about? You know, that, that the grass is not necessarily greener on the other side, as it were. Yes. So I think overall, I'll start with the bigger picture. I think overall, what I've learned is that simple ingredients are just better ingredients. I think the more processed it is, the more processing that has to happen with food ingredients, the more risk and uncertainty there is underneath that. Right. So, and I found that in almost every ingredient that I've researched to date, right, including honey, turmeric, you know, spices, wheat, vegetable oils, right? There are these. Yeah, stevia. Yeah, stevia, right? Strawberries. It's just, you know, it's simple, 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 simple. It's like Occam's razor. The, the simplest answer is usually the right answer. It is, it's just simple. People, we can eat healthy foods that are just simple foods. And even then there's still some, can be some funky things. Like when the turmeric boom came, we all remember that, right? Everybody wanted to be eating turmeric, turmeric this, turmeric latte, turmeric blah, blah, blah. Right? I have a bag of it in my back cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> and I got hooked on that too. I was making turmeric rice. I was like, turmeric, turmeric, turmeric. Turns out that, you know, a lot of ground turmeric is adulterated, folks. And it's unfortunate, right? 
if you're getting whole root turmeric, that's one thing. But if you're getting ground turmeric, that's a whole other can of worms. And there can be some very detrimental things there. So, you know, I don't, I'm always surprised, to be honest. You know, I just continue to learn and continue to dig for information because it's really difficult to trust what we see at face value. And so I, in every episode, I try to use this benchmark of like, what's the history? What's the economic benefit? And who? Cui bono? Who's benefiting from this economic push? You know, how is how are these ingredients impacting our environment, the growing practices, the chemicals that are used, and then the residual chemicals that are on them. How does that impact our health and our well-being? Are we really getting the nutrition that they say we're getting? Like really? Sometimes the answer is no. Right. And can I interrupt? Uh, so so yeah. give me a takeaway because I know a lot of people use stevia and they're always interested to hear is it safe? Is it good? Is it not? What's a takeaway that you have from your podcast that you did on that? Which, by the way, is a great one for people to listen to. Well, I, I appreciate that. I think if you are turning to stevia because you want a sugar alternative, yeah. right? A sweetener alternative. I think that there are better, safer alternatives than stevia. I think stevia, you know, historically stevia was used in its leaf form, right? So it was a, it was a whole product, right? It was a whole leaf that people would use in their yerba mate tea. They would just throw the stevia in there and use the stevia leaf they would get the benefits from the stevia leaf, get a little bit of sweetener that wasn't sugarcane, bada bing, bada boom, like that's okay. But that's not what stevia is now. Stevia is a manufactured supplement that's, you know, are the people controlling the manufactured stevia are pushing it because they think consumers want low sugar low sugar. We need lower sugar because there's this obesity problem, there's diabetes, right? So people want to find alternatives to fill that sugar addiction, right? Our minds, our palates are just, we're wired that way. That's why I'm asking this question. (laughs) (laughs) We like that. Yeah. What's the but? The but is, you know, and I heard this in one of your episodes that you were talking about, one of your guests was saying, leaning into the pain, leaning into the discomfort. Getting off of sugar is uncomfortable. It is painful. In fact, I will tell you, I'll I'll just let you into my day today. I woke up with a headache. Ask me why. Why? Because yesterday I really dropped my sugar consumption. <laughs> and I am leaning into this headache that I have uh, because it's just part of doing the work, right? So for me, I'm not an advocate of stevia. I don't even like the taste of stevia, if I'm being honest. I, I think it tastes like sweet and low or, you know, one of these, you know, aspartame based, you know, additives, which, you know, that's a whole other drama. But stevia, like if you're growing your own stevia leaf plant, great. Throw it in your tea, you know, process it the way that you want to process it and use it. If you're trying to continue drinking sodas and juice or eat products that are low sugar or zero, they're promoting it as zero sugar, which is, you know, deceptive. I tried asking somebody what that meant. And of course people can't, they can't tell me because they don't know. So 
I think if you really want to have something sweet, and I know that we're all conflicted with our sugar addiction, but at the end of the day, I know that you all recommend just dropping sugar altogether. But I think, you know, and maybe that's the right way for a lot of people. They have to just go cold turkey, right? That's the only way that they're going to get past it. For me, you know, I am a supporter of my local B guy, I call him. He's my B guy. (laughs) And I buy pure, local, unfiltered, unadulterated honey. And I do that because there's bee pollen in there. You know, if you suffer from allergies and you have hay fever or you you're you have a histamine response, sometimes the local bee pollen as it builds up in your system can help you overcome those things. Plus it has propolis in it, which is like nature's antimicrobial, antibacterial, antifungal, anti-everything it seems. And there's just a lot of benefits for me personally. And I think it's a lot easier to control my sugar intake knowing that honey's my only option, right? And it's not to say that I don't get sugar in, you know, other products. You know, we do the best that we can. We can't control anything in a box. (laughs) We can only control like the things we grow, the things we make from scratch. And, you know, there are recipes where you can use honey. You know, it's expensive. But again, when you're supporting somebody locally, it might be a higher price point. Maybe, maybe not. You can do the math. But what the benefits that are coming out of it is that I personally appreciate my local honey way more than I would any cane sugar that I could just like dump a teaspoon into something or half a cup into a batch of cookies or something. You know, I I appreciate that honey. It's more expensive, but it's more beneficial and I don't need to use as much. So it's really for me a more of a personal commitment and it's about understanding you know, the benefits. There is no one thing that's better than another. There's always going to be trade-offs. You have to give up something to get the things that you want. There's no perfect anywhere. Moving to another addiction, can you give a takeaway on coffee? Because you have a great coffee podcast as well. What did you call it? An exploitive drug in plain sight. And it it does. We are all hooked. Not all of us, but you know, what was funny about the coffee episode to me, maybe not funny, but just really interesting is that it seems like the science is still conflicting on whether coffee's good for us or or it isn't, right? Like there are some sources that say, oh, well, coffee, the caffeine, it's not bad. It's actually good. It stimulates, blah, 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 this, that, the other thing. But I think anything in excess is, you know, can throw you off balance, right? We use coffee as a stimulant in the morning, right? It's kind of a social drink. It's a little bit of Uh, of an addiction, especially if you're like getting the macchiatos and the caramel lattes and all of that because they taste delicious (laughs) because they're full of sugar and milk. But I think that, and I've been doing this this last week is I've been having just black coffee. And again, leaning into the discomfort, changing my palate, right? Really trying to train my brain because I think some of it is neuroscientific, right? We have this association to things based on our emotional inputs or our physical feelings, or, you know, we drink coffee maybe as a form of a habit. I didn't start drinking coffee until I went to graduate school. So, you know, that was later in life, but it felt like I was just, 
I had too much on my plate and I didn't want to fail out of school. (laughs) So, you know, as a single parent at the time of a a young child, you know, going to school, working a full-time job, you know, all at the same time, I was like, okay, how about some coffee? And, and it worked for me. I got through graduate school, thankfully, but it did. I still drink coffee every day and I enjoy coffee. What's the exploitive, what's the dark side, the seamy side of coffee that we should know about? Like the dirty secret side, like as your podcast. So the dirty secret side is the farmers, you know, it's the farmers, it's the way that coffee's grown. It is an ecological mess. You know, a lot of coffee, depending on the region, you know, is grown in places where the ecological resources are getting depleted. You know, maybe there's some labor issues. There's certainly some chemical issues, right? Coffee is one of those crops. And I talk about it in my ochrotoxin episode, which ochrotoxins are a fungus that are in grains and, you know, lots of flour products. It's also in coffee and it can digestively be something that is really awful. (laughs) And we, we don't even know that, you know, we have it. So the addictive part of that or the awful side of coffee, I think is, you know, in part the way that the market is and how the coffee gets to us, you know, and there are some things that have been put in place like fair trade, right? If we buy fair trade coffee, then that must be better. That's not always the case, right? There's, like there's the fed right. version of it. Yeah. Right. Right. There's no fair trade police. You know, there's nobody really checking or there might be some people checking, but there's just limited bandwidth. You can't check all of them. And coffee is a huge, huge, huge business because we're all addicted to it. Gotta have our coffee. Yeah, right on. So, so getting to the more expensive, from the more expensive addictions, I'm really interested in, you did a podcast on food banks. What's your takeaway on that one? Well, this episode is all over the place. Yeah. I love it. Food banks are interesting. And the reason I looked into food banks is because there was a time in the time arc of this pandemic that we're in where a lot of people had to turn to food banks. We just, people just had to. And so I think that there is a place for food banks in when we start talking about food security. There are a lot of people that are food insecure. My problem with food banks, or one of my problems with food banks, is a lot of times food banks are getting the food inputs that they're distributing from corporations that are doing horrible things to our environment. They have horrible labor practices. Like they're just awful corporations. And that's not to say that they are not giving this food to food banks to help people, but I think it's, you know, it's complicated. How are you going to give food that is either, you know, contaminated or just not good for people's health, especially low-income people, the science supports that there are higher cases of heart disease, diabetes, obesity, right, in low-income communities, but you're giving them this food that is the antithesis to that. How is that helping us? You know, and not all food banks are like that, but there is this like network of food banks where they, you know, they get government assistance, they get inputs from these large corporations that want to donate, you know, their products, whether they're 
you know, almost expired or who knows what's in them. And they're giving them away to these communities. It's really complicated. And I don't want to sound like, oh, well, you know, don't go to a food bank if you need food because you absolutely should. But you can also go to the farmer's market at the end of the day and say, hey, you know, and maybe it takes some humility and some courage to be like, hey, you know, I could really use some help. Do you have anything that you're giving away? Right. Or, you know, if if you don't want to take everything back with you, would you sell me something at half price? Because I'm low income. A lot of farmers markets take SNAP benefits now. Right. So, you know, there's few excuses. It's just about like thinking through things. Food banks are easy because you can just drive up. They give you a box of stuff. You drive off. You say thank you. Right. It's easy. And I've been to a food bank. So in 20. 21, I was in an area living in a place where we had an ice storm. I was out of food, not, I wasn't out of food because I'm hardly ever out of food, (laughs) but I was out of water, heat, you know, for 12 days, no power, no internet, no nothing. So I went to the local school because they were giving away flashlights and blankets and I, I could use those things, right? I had a hundred something animals, no water, right? Mind you. And just trying to keep everybody alive was unsuccessful because a lot of my animals died during that. But at that time I was at the school, I went over and I picked, they just gave me all these boxes of food. They're like, oh no, you need food. There's lots of people, you can take it. So I get the box home and I look at it and none of it is anything that I'm going to eat. <laughs> you know, Maybe yogurt, you know, yeah. and, and the oranges that were in there and maybe some potatoes, which, you know, whatever. I was grateful for it, but it was nothing that I would consciously put in my body unless I was starving. And so, you know, I work at a shelter and we get, we get literally um, shelves of bread loaves and we don't need those bread loaves. Like, so I I get what you're saying. It's all the stuff that it's not healthy. Yeah. And it's, it's unfortunate because there are hungry people. There are people that need assistance that cannot afford, you know, healthy food for their families. It's just part of how the system is built right now, you know, with inflation and it makes it even worse and unemployment. I mean, it's just, you know, but I always support people trying to grow their own food. That's another way you can hedge that and create some resilience for yourself. Talk to a neighbor, you know, get some seeds. I send seeds to my patrons. I'm doing a seed giveaway every Friday, food freedom. Everybody should have food freedom. There should be no barriers to growing something, right? Even if it's just peas or it's, you know, tomatoes or squash or something to have to begin to build food resilience because you can, you can preserve those things. You can can them. You can, there's lots of old world ways to preserve food. Our ancestors didn't have refrigeration and microwaves. They just didn't, (laughs) you know. They had to grow everything in the summer and preserve it through the winter, period. We can do that. And I do that. Yeah. Anybody can do it. Absolutely. Michelle, you make me want to be a better person. Like <laughs> listening to your podcast, listening <laughs> to you. There are so many things that I already do. Again, I think just by the grace of God, because that's how I was raised. But there are so many things that you talk about in your podcast and even just here today that I'm like, okay, I need to be paying more attention to the economic ecological factor. And we had so many more questions and we kind of joked about that at the beginning. We get very yeah. ambitious with our guests, but I think at the end of the day, here's my message to our listeners go check out Michelle's 
podcast food flame because she talks about who owns our plates. She talks about chickens and potatoes and coffee and stevia and all of these different things that are very important to us to be better informed eaters. Right. And let's, let's level up our game. Like, listen, we're out there trying to vote with our forks anyways, and say no to these bigger corporations with the processed foods. If you're there, if you're stable, let's level up our game and let's look at the proteins and let's look at the produce that we're eating. Why are we not showing up at these farmers? Like what is standing in our market from now on? Yeah. Yeah. And I was going to say, when you guys were talking about the food bank, I was going to say, I know in Montana snap benefits or like food stamps, I don't know what they are in Canada, Vera, but here they're snap benefits. You can, you can go to the local farmers markets and they accept them there. I didn't know that until I actually went to the farmers market a few years ago and started seeing the signs everywhere, but it's not like it's advertised, right? That's not like a commercial you see on the television or here on the radio. And so again, I think the more people who know that, the better. So we know you are a very busy lady. So to wrap this up, you know, I could do this all day, right? I know we could too. We <laughs> totally could too. I wish. Yeah. Right. <laughs> What's next? So you have the podcast. I think you said you work three jobs. <laughs> what, yeah, Lord. what big project or, or what's kind of like, what's in the works for you, if anything? Or, or what are some more podcasts that are coming up that you're anxious to do? Yeah. Whoa, that's a loaded question. We have another 15 minutes. So I have a lot on my plate. There's no doubt about it. I have often been called by my boyfriend, just like really ambitious. Like I I just have to be busy doing something. And then I complain about how busy I am. And I think that's, I'm not unique in that way, right? There's just so many things that pique my interest. And I'm a very curious learner. I think I'm a lifelong learner. I've been to school. I've been to undergraduate. I have a graduate degree. Like there's no end to learning for me. And so I think what's next for me, because I do my podcast, which, you know, doesn't bring in a ton of income unless anybody wants to sign up for my patron, you know, as a patron of my podcast, but I don't do it for the money. You know what I'm saying? Like I do it because it's something that I believe in. It's information that I think everybody should know. Everybody, we make a conscious choice three times a day to put food into our mouths, into our bodies, right? We should know what that is. And I think if more people knew what was behind that thing that they're putting in their mouth and what the externalities are, what the impacts are economically, environmentally, health-wise, I think we would talk with our dollars and, you know, like you said, vote with our forks. So I do that work because I love it. I'm not doing it because I feel like it's a job. Yes, it's a lot to research and to do and put like, and my episode went live today. I was like, Oh, wait a minute. It's, it's almost noon. I gotta, (laughs) I gotta put it up on my website, you know, but so I'm doing that. And there's a couple really interesting episodes coming up this season. I'm in season eight and next week I'm interviewing a, an organic biochemist, a PhD, talked to him a couple of times on the show. We talked about epicyte corn, which was a phenomenal episode. We talked about fluoride in the past. This time we're talking about the science. And it is so fascinating to talk to him. We have a really good rapport. And so, you know, if you want to listen to that episode, it'll be out next week. I'm doing an episode on food waste coming up, which is also kind of a pet peeve of mine. I'm digging into... 
yeah, I'm digging into this thing that I just found out. I had to bump a couple of episodes because I want to release it in February because the Olympics are happening in Beijing. And there's some drama going on with the meat that our athletes are eating over there. Just, just so, there's just so much. I don't feel like I'll ever run out of things to research. I don't know. Maybe I will, or maybe I'll get tired one day. I don't know. But so that's, what's coming up with that. I do have a part-time job. I work directly with farmers. So that's one of my other jobs. And I'm really excited about that because I get to work directly with local farmers, livestock farmers. So people who are producing meat, they're doing amazing things with their soil. That is where every morsel of food that is grown starts. It starts with the soil. And so the farmers in, in my network are really conscientious about their soil, their growing soil. They have these very closed loop systems. I get to learn. I get to see the production of the food that I might potentially be eating. And it's just fascinating to me. So I encourage anybody within earshot, if you have an opportunity to visit a local farmer, especially a livestock farmer, go. It'll be such a phenomenal experience. And then let's see, what's my other job? I'm trying to think. Oh, I'm a farmer. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) I'm busy feeding animals and raising animals. And, you know, we're coming into spring now. So I'm getting a lot of eggs, duck eggs. If you haven't ever had a duck egg, like you've got a local farmer near you, like get some duck eggs. They're, They're higher in protein. They're delicious. They have good cholesterol. I mean, they're great for baking. What else can I say? You know, farming is my therapy. It is one of those things. And one thing I did want to throw in there because I know your podcast talks about food addiction. And one of the things that I think I heard in one of your episodes is we turn to food as comfort, right? It is a, it is a comfort to something I think that is neurologically happening in our lives, whether it's a stress factor, it's a traumatic event. It is, you know, something that we're saying to ourselves and the way that we talk to ourselves in our own minds, the world is constantly telling us that we're not enough. We're just not enough, you know, which is a lie, by the way, don't listen to that. But I think that farming and gardening and growing food and being attached to the land, being in tune with animals, and you probably, you're shaking your head, Molly. So you, you know, what I'm talking about, that there is this communication, this unspoken communication that is very therapeutic for me. And people ask me all the time, especially my family members, they ask me, well, how could you, how can you slaughter a chicken? Like, where did you even learn how to do that? Or like, how can you take an animal's life? I love animals. I respect my livestock. I'm very proud of the work that I do. And I'm humbled it's not easy. And I, and I had an episode with Marjorie Wildcraft and we talked about it. She's, she's another powerhouse kind of trying to save the world with growing food in your backyard. But we talked about this and it's one of those things that when, you know, there's humility that comes with that responsibility. When you raise animals humanely, when you talk about like an animal in the wild, do you think that that animal has a humane like transition from a predator. It's diabolical. If you've ever seen an animal get captured by a predator, like a coyote catches a chicken, that is grotesque, right? It is hard to watch. Nature is hard, right? 
a chicken in an industrialized factory is not a humane existence for that chicken. But my chickens, I see them every day. I feed them. I water them. I admire them. I'm moving them around on pasture like every day. I don't get a vacation from that, right? And I have a sense of pride in the work that I do as every farmer does. And I don't take it for granted that, you know, having been a vegetarian, right? Because there's an ethical reason why people are vegetarian and I get it. I'm not participating in that. I treat my animals with respect. They get the best care that they can, but it's one day of their lives and it's, you know, the most humane way that they could become something that sustains our lives. And it, it does take humility. It does take gratitude. It's difficult every time, but there are benefits to it. You know, depending on, on where you stand, like some people have religious reasons, right? Some people have ethical reasons. Some people who want to be omnivores, who want to eat a very well-balanced diet because there are things in meat products that you can't get from vegetables or grains. You just can't, right? So it is a personal choice. It is something that, you know, I have honed my skill to be very humane in that process and very grateful. I don't waste one thing, not one feather. You know, I got to say, I really appreciate your speaking to the humane side of the work that you're doing because it's something that people think about and I actually never heard somebody speak so clearly and so openly about this so I really appreciate this it it is a big thing and you know it is one of those things that and Molly you said something about this when you were talking about Montana and livestock in Montana and you know there is this kind of social paradigm that's happening around animal welfare right and there is this miscommunication Farmers are getting lumped in with the industrial market, and that is disingenuous and it's unfair, just on its face. And I think that the narrative that's being pushed is like, oh, we all have to be vegetarians and we should accept this lab-grown meat because of you know the carbon emissions or the greenhouse gas emissions and the inhumane treatment of animals and all of these things, resources, water, fires, drought. Right. There are all of these reasons. But when you really understand pasturing animals and these closed loop systems and animal welfare and soil health, you understand that you, by pasturing an animal, having their waste go back into the land to be composted, which feeds the soil life and the bacteria, which then feeds the grass that they're going to eat, which feeds them and converts into protein. Like it's this closed, wonderful closed loop. It sequesters carbon. And this narrative that, you know, small farmers who are pasturing animals are doing, you know, worse, right? Or, Or that pasture animals, you know, are just soaking up too much water and too many resources. The science doesn't support that. That's just the narrative, right? Because when you're pasturing an animal, if you're calculating water usage, you have to break it down. Industrially produced beef uses water in their processing and to grow the corn and the soy. Like they're just different numbers. The water that gets 
sequestered in the soil to grow the grass that they're eating. That's a different number. And there's lots of research to support that. And so I think that there is a lot of convoluted messaging in order to drive this narrative to get people to turn away from, you know, meat in general. And I think it's disingenuous because there are a lot of benefits to eating, say, beef tallow, which is rendered beef fat versus vegetable seed oils, right? If we can come full circle. And so I encourage your listeners to just stay informed. I think if anything is being promoted as a fad or it's like popular to do right now, you know, don't take it at face value. You know, that's where I started this podcast with kale, the kale underbelly, right? Like who doesn't want to eat kale? Kale, kale, kale. It's supposed to be a good thing. And, but there's something about kale that was bothering me. (laughs) So I looked at it. So, you know, it's just tuning into oneself, trying to get the best nutrition from the sources that you can afford economically, right? Which may mean, oh, well, maybe you got to reduce your Starbucks visits, you know, for the year and put it into maybe buying a a share of a cow with your neighbor or your, your uncle or your mom or whatever, and having better food, better options and reducing our dependence on the food supply chain and really like leaning into the discomfort of trying to be local and finding other options and supporting, you know, your neighbors. I think it's coming to a point where we, we really will have to rely on our local communities moving forward for a lot of reasons. Great. Well, thank you, Michelle, so much for so much of what you said. Like, really, it's it's stuff we haven't talked about. And I know some of us have wondered, and you're bringing it all out into the open, which we really appreciate, especially the whole meat versus vegan thing. Like, it's yeah. so refreshing. Then people should listen to my Meet Me in the yeah. Lab episode or yeah. the Farmland Gatekeeper episode is also really talking about kind of the underpinnings of what's happening in the meat landscape yeah. and farmland and, you know, equity investments into farmland. Listen, and, listen yeah. to all of the podcasts. Yeah. <laughs> really you really research well. I mean, you interview people and you research well. Like, it's it's really clear. Anyway, I appreciate it. Yeah. So, Molly, did you want to take the uh, last question, the signature question? Or you No, know, I really feel like Michelle answered our signature question. We typically uh, ask our guests, like, what would you have, like, told a younger version of yourself, you know, <laughs> before you started all of this? But I think, I think you really answered that just now. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, you know, just to kind of wrap it up is, you know, we've had Vinny Tortorich on our podcast twice now. And he just came out with his video documentary beyond impossible. And everything you just said really reminded me of him, right? Like our good intentions have been stolen and here you are out there like digging, like you said, like something kind of piques your interest. You start digging into it and you're happy to have a conversation with it about, about it with others who are maybe experts in the field or whatever. And I just want to echo what Vera said. Everybody needs to go listen to your podcast because it is a very, when food is our outlet for our disease, <laughs> it's very, very important that we pay attention to what it is that's going into our bodies, just like you said. So again, I appreciate you being here so much. We could have gone on and on and on. We may have to have you back yes. just so that we can get more questions. Yes. Answered. Um, yes. And I would tell my, I would tell my younger self, okay. be careful. Yeah. Just that's be careful, you know, just be careful. It's okay to be careful. I'll leave that 
there. You know, it's okay to say no. Be careful. You know, boundaries are good. You know, all of those kind of things because nothing is ever what it seems. Exactly. I like that. I got chills. Thank you ladies so much for being here today. Take care. Have a great day. I appreciate it to the both of you. Much success. Thanks for doing the work that you do. I really appreciate you having me on today. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life Support Group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.